morning, church. Feels a little bit this morning like uh, the gang's all here, right? Matthew's back from the great white north, and Doug is here, and so it's, it's nice to see, see those two brothers and have them back with us, as Joe just said a minute ago. Um, for sake of review, right, we, got, we had a lot of folks that were out last week traveling for the holidays. For the sake of review, we started the book of Titus last Sunday. As I had mentioned, it's been, this church has been in existence for nine years, and I'm not sure we've ever really spent time walking through an ecclesiology on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning through a series. And so what perfect time, right? So as, as a quick review, we have, have this short, brief pastoral epistle written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the mid-60s, um, most likely after his first imprisonment and before his second and his death. Uh, the audience that he was writing to was most obviously Titus, um, but we also talked last week that the Apostle Paul wasn't strictly and only writing to Titus. He was also writing to the elect, to the church that was there on the island of Crete, which is where Paul left Titus to minister. All right, and then one more thing about this island of Crete in which Titus, or upon which Titus was left. It was a infamously hedonistic society in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Paul was left, or Titus was left there to put things into order, which we will talk about here shortly. And so that's how we kind of got to where we are today. And we talked last week very briefly about how the elect, those in the church, are called to do what? Called to live by faith. Their lives are to be identifiable with their faith. They should be able to be looked at and recognize that they are driven by their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all that they do. And in that faith, in that living, right, it is steered by their doctrine, steered by the knowledge of the truth, as Paul writes. And those two things accord with godliness, a life defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ in everything that he does in accord with his truth. And how the church, their eyes are not to be fixed on their present day circumstances. Their eyes are not to be set and brought low, but lifted up high at to, and, and to look at their eternal hope. Look towards their eternal hope, this kingdom. This eternal hope that which they hear through the preaching of God's word. And was brought to them through the preaching of God's word. And so today, as we walk into our next four verses, we're going to see this connection that putting the church into order is necessary for effective ministry. Having this church in order is necessary as required by the Apostle Paul to Titus. So our text this morning says this, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writing to, to, to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gathering of your church, for the gathering of saints on the Lord's Day morning to fulfill the commands that you have given us to gather around the preaching of your word, the singing of your word, the reading of your word, the praying of your word, all of these things, all of us gathered around your word so that we may grow by your spirit into Christ-likeness. So this morning, let us do just that. Let us do just that. Following after you faithfully, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, when I was preaching, I think it was the Galatians one-off sermon that I did a few, few weeks back, um, I had mentioned the miniseries Band of Brothers. I don't know if any of you took my advice and watched it between, I don't know, a month and a half ago and today, but as I had said, Band of Brothers is a World War II miniseries on HBO that follows the 101st Airborne, specifically Easy Company, as they enter into the European uh, theater of war. Right, so it follows them from their training in Tekoa, Georgia, all the way until the very end where they are finally finished uh, at Hitler's home, the Eagle's Nest, I think it was called. So it, it, go, it goes from, from Normandy, through Holland, through Belgium, into Germany. It follows that whole pattern. It's episode seven, episode seven. Episode seven is the second episode focusing on the Battle of the Bulge. Right, as the 101st was surrounded by the Germans in the forests of Belgium, uh, they had entered Bastogne, and, and they were in a very, uh, very bad predicament, Sur- surrounded by the Germans, right, as they bulged out of the line to try and push back against the Allies pushing in. And in this second episode, we get to meet this guy. His name is Lieutenant Dyke, Norman Dyke. And Norman Dyke was put... Uh, he was sent in from battalion command to help oversee Easy Company as they were in Bastogne. Now, the only problem is Norman Dyke was a magician. He disappeared all the time. When they were in their foxholes in the woods, they would be looking for Lieutenant Dyke to, to figure out what to do next. And sure enough, Lieutenant Dyke is missing and nowhere to be found. They don't know where he is. He's, he's off walking. He takes walks all the time as he tries to escape his uh, responsibilities of decision-making in such a dangerous affair. And in this episode, Norman Dyke is now responsible. The, the bulge has kind of been broken, and they're now trying to take this town of Foy in Belgium. And to take this town of Foy, they need to leave the woods that they're in and enter into this town by running through this open field. There's some hay bales and some farms, but it's a largely open field to enter into the town to take it. So as you can imagine, running through an open field while there are Germans, enemy Germans, in the town of Foy can get pretty hairy pretty quickly. And it's Lieutenant Norm Dyke who is responsible for leading their entrance into the town of Foy. But the problem is, Norm Dyke has difficulty making decisions. And in the time of the heat of battle, in the time in which decisions are most needed, their commanding officer cannot make decisions. So he leads his men halfway through this field. 
Halfway through this field, the Germans are firing upon the Americans as they're entering Foy. And Norm Dyke freezes. He stops, tells his people, his men to stop. He gets down on one knee in the middle of an open field. And they just scatter. And as you can imagine, there are men falling all over the place because of what Norm Dyke is doing. We, we, we zoom out, and in the woods in the back, we have uh, Dick Winters, who is the commanding officer of the whole, uh, the whole unit, yelling at Dyke to go, to keep moving, to not stop, because you are in danger. You are getting men killed. You are going to die. You must keep moving. But he's panicking. Norm Dyke is panicking in the middle of this field behind a hay bale. And then, eventually, Norm Dyke is relieved of his duties. He's fired in the middle of a battle. And Spears, another captain in the, in the group, is put in charge and takes over as, as they enter the town of Foy. But what we see in that picture, what we see in that depiction that they show so well in the band of brothers, qualified leadership is necessary. If you don't have qualified leadership in the midst of battle, in the midst of spiritual warfare, in the midst of this broken society that we reside in, there will be great carnage. There will be great damage done. Right? So as Paul has left Titus on Crete, as I mentioned last week, our society is probably not all that much different than what Crete was. A hedonistic society filled with pleasure, filled with whatever it was you wanted and needed, in scare quotes, at whatever time you could get it. Right? That's not too different from us. And Titus was left there to put these things into order. So that way they could have an effective ministry on this island. Leadership is important. As I think I said in one of our Sunday school classes, not to identify any elders or pastors as kings, but just to take a biblical uh, pattern that happens as the king goes so goes the kingdom right we're walking through second samuel right now talking about david we have just walked through uh david's failures with bathsheba a few weeks ago and then all of the crumbling that begins to happen after that as the king goes so goes the kingdom Eventually the kingdom crumbles, it separates, and then it crumbles some more. As more and more wicked kings are raised up for Israel and Judah, and they crumble and crumble and crumble and disappear. So the king, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. In order to have an effective church, a ministry that is effective, there are qualifications for the people who are leading. And that's what we get to today. This biblical pattern that has been set... So our first point today, as we begin to look at this text a little more, is this. A church is a place of particular order in governance and practice as defined by God himself. A church is a place of particular order in governance and practice as defined by God himself. Verse 5, Paul writes this to Timothy. Again, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus. This is why you were left. So that you might put what remained into order. The mission was not necessarily complete and fulfilled when Paul left and went on his next trip. 
And it was Titus's job to start putting that together, to, to start bringing that to fulfillment. We see this infancy of a church that was left and Titus's task to organize and order what was started. Now, this wasn't any arbitrary task. This wasn't anything that was just left willy-nilly. Do what you want, Titus. Just put it together and get it going. There is this expected pattern that was uh, put into place as this church was being built under the authority of Paul, but ultimately as steered by God himself. Think of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel was not put together in some happenstance, arbitrary, willy-nilly, kind of do-what-you-want kind of group, was it? There was very clear and articulated laws that governed every single aspect of Israel's life as the people chosen by God to be his people in a place. And that pattern continues in the New Testament for the church as God's elect, his chosen people called out from the nations to follow him. There is an expected pattern of leadership, of governance, that we must bear out. Church, a church bears identifiable markings, identifying the people as a church. We must bear specific markings that identify us as a church. We talked a little bit about this last week, right? Our lives of faith, the elect, their lives are completely guided by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last night we watched, last night we watched, what was it? National Treasure with Nicolas Cage on Disney Plus. I, I know I keep talking about Disney Plus shows, but we watched National Treasure last night. National Treasure is about this guy who is convinced that on the back of the Declaration of Independence, there is a treasure map from um, the Knights Templar. And so they, he steals this this Declaration of Independence from Washington, D.C., so that way he can protect it from other guys trying to steal it to get the treasure. But this whole movie, I couldn't help but think, this guy's entire life, everything this guy has done has been in search of this treasure. I mean, like I said, he has gone so far as to break in, to, I don't know, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., to steal the Declaration of Independence. Everything this guy has done up until this point has been to find this treasure. What a picture that is for the church, right? Everything the church is to be, everything the people of the church are to do is to be in pursuit of our treasure. And there are times when Benjamin Gates, the character, he looks absolutely insane. He goes to, to talk to the FBI, he goes to talk to Homeland Security, and they don't even take his threat seriously. They, they don't even consider him credible and they just kick him out. And I think in many ways, lives that are completely defined by Jesus Christ should look something like that to outsiders. So one thing, right? One thing that our church, an identifiable marking of the church is that the members of a church, their lives are characterized by their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They have to be, steered by the truth of God's doctrine, gathering into local bodies for the purpose of worship. I think Jonathan Lehman's analogy about the church being an embassy is a perfect analogy for what we're talking about here. 
The church is an embassy, right? We have been called as Christ followers out of whatever situation and whatever predicament we have been in. And we have been given a membership into something far greater. We have been brought into a flock, a fold of something far greater than whatever it was we once resided in. And so now under the blood of Christ, we are no longer purely Americans, or we are no longer just citizens of the city of Louisville. Our citizenship is now much greater, is much higher than that. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, right, as we are called to look to our eternal hope. And think of Washington, D.C., again, going back to there. Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. You go there, you walk down Embassy Row, and what do you see? You see streets, both sides, lined with embassies. You have the flags of these different countries all laid out, all representing their own foreign country within the United States. And isn't that what a church is to do here? A people gathered in a particular location to represent their king. And that's who we are. We are a people ordered together in a local body for the sake of obedience to our king and representation of him in a foreign land. First Peter calls us sojourners, strangers and sojourners. That's not just cute speak. That's not just cute talk. We indeed are strangers and sojourners in this place and we represent our king in a foreign place our king our lord and savior jesus christ we as an embassy as an outpost for our kingdom here this is what we are doing now we gather together to carry out the commands of our lord and savior in obedience to his kingdom in obedience to his law so here we are carrying out his commands, gathering to pray the word, right? We had Pastor Doug lead the pastoral prayer this morning. He read James, and then what did he do? He prayed through that section of James. We pray God's word. We sing God's word. The music Joe chose for us this morning, our all songs, hymns, and spiritual songs that echo God's word and his saving grace for his people. We read his word. We read some of the Psalms this morning. Doug read James. We read 2 Samuel here. We've reading, we're reading Titus now. We read the word. We teach the word. Jacob taught 2 Samuel this morning. right? And I'm sure Noah taught something biblical in the teens and Rachel teaching the youth this morning. We teach God's word. We preach God's word. We gather around, not like I said last week, to hear me or to hear Jeff or to hear Doug. Woo, we're all windbags. You don't need to gather around to hear us. We gather around to hear God's word taught, to hear from the Lord himself. And we administer the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? These things that we are commanded to do as a local congregation, as an embassy for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus was to put these things into order. 
called to fulfill the Great Commission, to proclaim God's word to a foreign nation. And that foreign nation is literally right next door to us. The 1689 says it well. Our, our, our um, confession of faith says this. I'm going to read two paragraphs. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. And the authors wrote this. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. He has instituted the way in which he is to be worshipped. Just like Old Testament Israel, the law was instituted not by Moses. He didn't just make this stuff up and write it down. It was instituted by God. He is the author of that law that ordained, ordered, uh, completely ran the lives of ancient Israel. And so it is in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Our God outlines the way in which he is to be worshipped. We are not free to have smoke machines and free to have dance rituals and free to have chaos here. He has ordered the way in which he is to be worshipped. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Our ordering of worship, our gathering around uh, uh, as a congregation, as a local body, is to be completely and utterly and totally surrounded or, or taken out of his word, drawn from his word as he has ordered And so that was what Titus was left to do. The authors in a later paragraph in the same chapter say this. The reading of the scriptures, preaching, the hearing of God's word, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, and also the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God. To be performed in obedience to him, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. Paragraphs three and four talk about praying and praying God's word. So Titus was left to place these churches into order. These churches are meant to be local. They're meant to be local and congregational, I believe, as good Baptists are. He says this, right, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Not just one for the island of Crete. Not just one for the Mediterranean. Appoint elders, multiple elders, in every town. In every town, local, local embassies representing Jesus Christ in their locality as guided by Christ himself and as under shepherds guided by elders, a plurality, multiple elders. Our governance, our polity, just as our worship is to be 
completely governed by God himself in his word and in, by his authority. We see this in Acts chapter 6, right? I'll read this quickly. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so we're going back in time a little bit, a few years here as the author of, uh, as Luke is writing Acts to the very early church. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of uh, spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We have this very early identification of these offices. Men who are devoted to the preaching and teaching and spiritual care of the word. Men who are devoted to the care and the physical needs of the body. Elders, deacons. Right now we're going to specifically talk about deacons as we, or as elders as we look at this passage. The same word is used synonymously, bishop. Overseer, pastor, elder, all men fulfilling the same office. They are synonymous with one another. Right? We, we don't think that there is a bishop that is overseeing our church as well as all the other churches surrounding our, in our community. We believe in a plural, plural, plurality of elders who govern the local congregation who oversee and help steer the spiritual health through the preaching and teaching of God's word, the local body. And we have deacons who are there to help assist with the physical needs. We see this broken down again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So Titus, put these things into order. Put what remained, put the church that is there, the elders or the elect that are there, those who are believing. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Put these things into place. Build the church under the authority of Jesus Christ. Two, the leadership of a church requires a particular standard of living as defined by God. The elders of a church require a particular standard of living as defined by God. We talked about the qualifications uh, um, of Norm Dyke, of Lieutenant Dyke in the Battle of the Bulge and how being sent down from battalion command, he wasn't necessarily the most battle-ready of leaders and his qualifications weren't quite up to snuff and there was destruction that happened because of that. Think about the jobs you have applied for the positions that you have gone out and looked for, right? You go onto Google, you type in, I want to be a special ed teacher, okay? You see all these job postings from JCPS or Christian Academy or New Albany Floyd County or Greater Clark, and you go and look, and there are all these qualifications that are required, right? In the state of Indiana, you have to have a bachelor's degree in education and special ed. In the state of Kentucky, you need to have a master's degree after five years of teaching to be in a public school. There are these specific qualifications that you must possess to have that position. And the same is true of elders and of deacons. There is a certain quality, certain characteristics that a man must possess 
to be qualified for leadership in the church. And I think those can be broken down into three strands. A elder's life must meet certain characteristics or qualifications for their character. They must meet certain qualifications for their home. And they must meet certain qualifications for their faith. And then there is one outlier we will talk about shortly that is a skill set. But their qualifications are outlined in three ways. Their character, their home, and their faith. And I think we see that outlined here. As, as Paul wrote it to Titus, we have this kind of, this list of elders are not this, and elders are this, is how Paul breaks it down. As we look at, or yeah, as Paul breaks it down to Titus. In Timothy, we see a similar outline, but they can be broken into these three strands. So verse six, if anyone, talking about the elders being appointed by Titus, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, literally, and his children are believers, his children are faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Those are the things he is not. And he is hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm to the, to the trustworthy word as taught. So let's look at these characteristics really quickly. It's a long list. And what I've done here on my little notes is I've compiled the qualifications that he wrote to Timothy and the qualifications he wrote to Titus. Much of them match. I think there were only two that were different between the two pastoral epistles he wrote to the two men. So first, character. An elder must be above reproach, well thought, out, thought of by outsiders, and respectable. If you were to hear something incriminating about one of the elders or a qualified elder, it should be shocking to you. It should not be something that you would say, ah, yeah, I could, I could see that being the case for him. There is to be a sense of, of blamelessness. Not in a sinless manner, but in a sense of there is a claim brought and you just think there is no way that that is him above reproach, well thought of by outsiders, respectable. Upright, gentle, lover of good. We are not to be, elders are not to be men who are characterized by a quick temper, right? Not quick tempered. Not to be characterized by violence and hostility. Not to be one who is quick to quarrel. Not one who is out for dishonest and greedy gain. We're not in this position to fight with others, literally, physically, or verbally. We're not in this position to beat down others. We're not in this position to take from the church and seek wealth out of it or other things. We're not a drunk, not drunkards. Our lives are not consumed by something else. 
Our lives are not consumed by alcohol or drugs or pornography or some kind of addiction. Our lives are to be consumed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our character. And I must say, this wasn't written down in my notes, but I think oftentimes in our current day and age, in the last two years, elders, congregations, so quickly overlook verses 6, 7, and 8 and purely look at verse 9. So regularly do I see patterns of pastoral leadership that is purely, only defined by their teaching of the word and their ability to not protect the church but to actually just fight with people. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You go on Twitter and look at pastors in the Reformed Baptist circles or in the Reformed Presbyterian, PNR, R&B, PNR, whatever they are, Presbyterian and Reformed circles. Oh my gosh. I mean, there are days I think you can just look at that and say, not qualified, not qualified, not qualified, not qualified. Because we have so readily clung, as I said last week, to our ability to maintain and teach and think about doctrine that we have forgotten that our lives are to be formed and completely shaped by such doctrine. We've skipped seven, eight, and nine, or six, seven, and eight for the sake of nine. And that does not lead to a healthy church, right? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast right now. Think of it what you will. Many of you know my story, but there was a fall there. And there was a pattern of pastoral qualification that was lacking when it comes to quarrelsomeness, violence, things of that nature. Overlooking six, seven, and eight for the sake of nine is a death sentence for the church. So anyways, character is one overarching qualification for an elder. Family. I think this passage implies an elder is to be a man. An elder is to be a man, a husband of one wife, a one-woman man. He is the leader of the home. He is the leader in the church. I believe that is the pattern that was outlined for men. And I believe that eldership, the elders believe that eldership is for men. So the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. You can ask lots of questions. Well, what does that mean about divorces? What does that mean about death? There are many questions that can be asked. And I think that is a case-by-case situation, especially when it comes to divorce. It's a case-by-case situation and one that we're not going to necessarily have the time to lay out right at this minute. We've got to get moving. But I will say this. Pornography, your eyes, the lusts of the heart are enough to disqualify a man from eldership. It is not purely physical actions that will disqualify a man from leadership. A one-woman man is not one who is given to pornography, who is given to other women and tempted by such. Children are believers or faithful. This one's a tricky one, right? My children are nine, seven, five, and three. 
I don't know that I will safely, can safely say that any of them are, are sanctified, saved believers right at this minute. So what does that mean for qualification? I believe this passage, and the same with 1 Timothy, is talking about the faithfulness of the child to their parent. They are faithful. Children, the, the word uh, for, for believer there is literally faithful. Their children are faithful. And I think this is a measurement, not so much of the child. I don't know that it is so much a measure of the child as it is a measure of how the man leads his children. Our children are going to fail because guess what? I fail. Me and Silas, we've had a, a, tete, a tete for the last two days, Right? We fail. I fail. My children are going to fail. We're all going to fail. It is a matter of how we lead our family in the midst of those situations. Is our household a godly household? Would somebody see our home and say, he leads his family in a manner that glorifies Jesus Christ? He leads his children in a manner that glorifies Jesus Christ. And his children, though not perfect, are obedient to him and are faithful to him. His children are not open to claims of debauchery and insubordination. Our children are not many revolutionaries, right? They're not to be revolting against their parents' rule. That is a disqualification. Our children are to respect their parents. And it is a matter of how the men, how these elders lead their home. How they manage their household well, I believe to take a First Timothy phrase. They manage their home well. They consider what is needed financially They think about what they must do to support. They consider and lead and think about where their children are headed, how their wives are doing. They are considerate of all of the people within their home and they lead them in a godly manner. If they cannot do that with the home, how can they manage a church of 10, of 50, of 2,000 as the one down the road, right? There are questions to be asked. Another branch, another umbrella of qualification is their faith. They are listed here as being holy. Timothy, Timothy, Paul writes that they are not recent converts, right? Being holy, their lives, again, are defined by Jesus Christ. They are in constant pursuit of him. They are not young believers who are going to get in the pulpit and their heads are going to become large and they will take over instead of letting Jesus be the over-shepherd. So take note, just real quick, take note of how many of those things have nothing to do with ability. That's a long list. Longer than what you would go find on some business applications. That is a long list of qualifications that have nothing to do about your abilities. They are all about who you are your character. And then there is one. One skill set that is, or one qualification that is a skill set. 
The ability to teach, right? He writes this, Paul writes this in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, right? So he possesses that faith. He is fully invested in the word of God as his steering and defining um, factors. And he must be so defined and steered by this word because an elder must be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine. Elders have, this is three, third point. Elders have a particular responsibility that they are accountable for carrying out in the church. Elders have a particular responsibility that they are accountable for carrying out in the church. And this, as with everything else, is set forward in God's word, right? We read Acts 6 earlier. And this description, prescription that these men were to preach, teach, and pray. To maintain the spiritual health of the people. Paul even calls us here, going jumping reverse real fast to jump back to nine. He says, for an overseer as God's steward. An overseer, an elder... As God's steward. Can't skip those, those three little words. As God's steward. So what is an elder? What is a steward? A steward is someone who cares for something in the absence of its ruler. Gondor. Right? Gondor, the kingdom in, in Middle Earth, has been ruled by a steward for a long, long time. And the return of the king, the third book, is about the king coming back and they're no longer being a steward who is ruling Gondor. The steward of Gondor, Denethor, was a mess. And the kingdom was falling apart as there was danger on every single side. And he was not up to the qualifications to lead. And he did not steward that well because of it. Same picture. The same thing. We are God's steward. He is the over-shepherd. We are the under-shepherd. Stepping out from obedience to him leads to disqualification. It leads to not qualified to be an elder. Our submission as elders, as our submission is to believe, as believers, is to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Fully and completely in every single aspect of our lives. Our character, who we are inside, our home, who and how we lead the people we love most. And the faith that we maintain through all of that. And so, as stewards, our responsibility as elders, our, our responsibility as elders, as I've said twice already is to give instruction in sound, healthy doctrine. Paul writes this to Timothy in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. He writes this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Again, Timothy, young pastor, being put here. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is a priority, 
Paul is saying. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Timothy, young pastor, like Titus, put in charge of a church that is being put in order. He says this, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That is an expectation of Timothy the pastor to be godly, to vote himself to godliness, which is of great, great, great value, Paul tells him. Do not neglect the public reading of scripture. Do not neglect the exhortation of the people. Do not uh, uh, neglect the teaching of God's word. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker that he gives to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why? Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Right? What did he tell Titus in the opening paragraph in his greeting? That this hope that the elect of Crete have this knowledge of the truth that the people of Crete possess came from what? The preaching of God's word to them. So an elder is responsible for the preaching, teaching, prayer, the spirit, spiritual care of the church. And we are held responsible and accountable if that fails. For the sake of time, we'll close with this. The congregation, the people of the church, are not just bystanders in this. They're not just witnesses in this. It is the responsibility of the congregation to see the, qualifica the qualifications in these men. It is the responsibility of the congregation to keep the elders accountable for our qualifications. The church is not a bystander in this. You are all responsible for the health of this church in some form or fashion. Because as I said yes last week, as I said earlier today, this letter was not only written to Titus, the pastor, a pastor on Crete. This letter was written as Paul says, for the sake of God's elect. And lastly, in point of application, none of those qualifications, not a single one of them, is something that any believer should not be. Men in this church, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a lay member, you are to be a one-woman man. You are not to be quarrelsome. You are not to be violent. You are not to be a drunkard. 
You are to be peaceable. You are to be gentle. You are to be a lover of good. You are to be well thought of by outsiders. You are to be respectable. Those are qualifications of a believer, of being a faithful follower of Christ. So we cannot lose sight of that. We cannot lose sight of that. Let's pray. Father, let us be faithful. Lord, cause us to be elders who are faithful to your word. Let us be men whose lives are fully and completely and utterly defined by your law. Let us be deacons whose lives are completely and utterly defined by your commands. Let us be men, members of this church, as men who are, whose lives are completely defined by the person and work of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Let us be women whose lives are completely defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our children who are believers, let their lives be glorifying and honoring and obedience to Jesus Christ and to their parents. As adults or children in here who may not be believers, May they see their need for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your church, Lord, as you have determined, requires standards. And Lord, let us, let us as a people, wholly and entirely abide by your standard. To your word as you have commanded as you have called your people to be as an embassy, as an outpost. Let us not take your word for granted. Let us not take our worship, our Sunday morning gatherings, our family worship. Let us not take any of these things for, uh, for, for granted. And when we gather to hear your word, when we gather to hear your word preached, when we gather to hear your word prayed and sung and read, may we know that we are being faithful and may your spirit pierce our hearts and grow us by that word that we are reading and singing and praying and teaching and preaching. Cause this in us, Lord. Stir this up in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.